You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hello, everyone. My name is Evan Bernard, and I'm a research fellow with the Center for Climate and Security at the Council on Strategic Risks. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation between Sarong Shidore and myself about climate security in South Asia with an emphasis on the regional geopolitical and geostrategic implications of climate change. Sarong Shidore is Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute and Senior Research Analyst at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Prior to joining the Quincy Institute, Mr. Shidore was a Senior Research Fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. A South Asia international security expert, Mr. Shidore focuses on geopolitical risk and its intersection with the global energy transition and climate change. We examine the manifestations of climate change as a security threat in South Asia before discussing climate resilience measures in the region. We then look into water resource-related conflict between India, Pakistan, and China, including the implications of insufficient accountability and longitudinal dam construction. If you are interested in reading more about this topic, I encourage you to read the International Military Council on Climate and Security's report, Climate Security and the Strategic Energy Pathway in South Asia, as well as the Converging Risk Lab's report, Melting Mountains, Mounting Tensions. Let's go to the interview. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Mr. Sarang Shidore. Sarang Shidore, welcome to On The Verge. Thank you very much, Evan. Glad to be here. This is quite an interesting time, both geopolitically and geostrategically, in the South Asia region. And climate change is a factor complicating the entire region's security situation. Luckily, my guest today will help us piece together the puzzle and make sense of the current climate security situation in South Asia. Sarang, early in your career, you worked in engineering and technology. What led to your interest in regional security studies, particularly in the South Asia region? That's a great question, and it it was a shift in terms of what I did. But I suppose uh, science has always been an interest of mine, science and technology, and that led me to a career in engineering, which was very productive and very satisfying for me for a number of years. But at the back of my mind was my other interest that was perhaps less intense in my college years and grew with time, which is trying to apply some of these things I learned in the technological space to the wider policy arena. But also independent of that, I was also interested in all things political, social, and historical. So when any issue or matter was being discussed in the national news or indeed even more so international news, I was drawn to following it, especially when it involved issues of conflict, issues of contestation, issues of battles 
terms of ideas and that sort of thing. So with time, I decided at some point that I needed to do justice to that side of me. And therefore, I made, made a shift and I'm glad that I did that. Let's shift to the topic at hand, which is climate security, especially in South Asia. What do you think will be the most impactful security manifestations of climate change in the South Asia region? And which areas are most vulnerable? South Asia is a part of the world that occupies a very large fraction of the global population, about 20% or a little more than that of the world's population, one and a half, more than one and a half billion, almost 1.6 or 1.7 billion people live in South Asia. And South Asia encompasses basically all the countries that were at some point or the other a part of British India or were associated with it very closely. So that's India, Pakistan, of course, and Bangladesh, and then also Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, and the Maldives. These are the classic definition countries that belong to South Asia. Sometimes Afghanistan is also included in that definition, but for today's purposes, we will stick to the first set I described. And South Asia is very vulnerable to climate change. It's one of the most vulnerable regions in the world uh, to climate change, along with some others, such as Central America and the Caribbean, or for example, parts of Southeast Asia and so forth. So we are dealing with not just high vulnerability, which is, as we know, a summation of hazard exposure and then adaptive capacity of the populations. So we have a region that is riven with uh, serious socioeconomic challenges. It has a high population density. It has a very large fraction of the population engaged in farming. And then you have on top of that very significant climate hazards. The vulnerability is high and the source of this vulnerability from the side of climate change is in fact all of the above. Name a climate hazard and South Asia has it. The only one perhaps that it doesn't have and significant to a significant extent is wildfire. But drought, heat waves, cyclones, floods, sea level rise are all manifested in a very intense manner across the entire region. Obviously, certain parts are more prevalent in specific zones within South Asia. But in general, all of these are threats. Now, as you can imagine, cyclonic activity and sea level rise is most threatening to coastal South Asia, and specifically the east coast of South Asia, which includes Eastern India and Bangladesh are very vulnerable to cyclonic activity, have been so for decades. Uh, Classic uh, zones of cyclone strikes with many, many, historically in the past, there used to be many thousands dead from a particular event in that part of the region. The West Coast, though, is increasingly suffering from cyclonic threats, as we saw just uh, a week or 10 days back off the coast of Mumbai uh, and Gujarat in India, where you had cyclone Taktai that did not not hit a major urban uh, agglomeration, but could well have. And um, But the coasts are not, in fact, the only regions. Of course, the interior of the country in some ways is more vulnerable because that's where uh, the interior parts of South Asia, that's where you have significant human deprivation in terms of poverty, in terms of inequality, also in terms of agriculture. For example, states of central India, northern India are very vulnerable to changes in average temperature. Parts of those regions are also vulnerable 
vulnerable, especially the eastern part of India, northeast and the east, and Bangladesh. These three zones are vulnerable to flooding, and drought is really a perennial issue across so many parts of the subcontinent. So you have central India, you also have uh, areas in parts of peninsular India, and then parts of Pakistan in, in, in the Sindh province particularly are prone to droughts and water stress. This challenge is also faced by the states bordering Pakistan and India. So that's Rajasthan and Gujarat, which are in the western or northwestern part of India. So all in all, almost all parts of South Asia have some vulnerability or the other. The only country, interestingly, that has perhaps the least vulnerability, although it is an economically challenged country, is Nepal, where you have a large part of Nepal is up in the hills or the mountains in the Himalayas. And here you have uh, temperatures warming, which actually some studies have shown will increase agricultural productivity. But on the flip side, of course, climate change will increase natural disasters in the Himalayas. So things like glacier lake outburst floods, when lakes trapped in glaciers suddenly release their water because the glacier cracks open or breaks. Uh, you also have avalanches that can be increased or the frequency of those can be increased due to climate effects. So it's not that Nepal is free from the effects of climate change. It's just that some of the effects that you see in the rest of, the, of South Asia are not, not so present. Maldives, of course, a small island nation in the Indian Ocean is existentially threatened by climate change. It is projected to entirely sink, perhaps by the end of the century or a little bit after. You're seeing it really across a wide swath of the region. And did I forget to mention Sri Lanka, which is an important country in a strategic position, south of India, where climate change will have major impacts, especially in the poorer north part of the country, which, as we know, was racked by a insurgency for many years till around 2009 or 2010. Really, there is no part of South Asia that's, that can rest easy when it comes to climate change. I would like to follow up on your great points, such as hydrological threats, and ask what would be your suggestions for building climate resilience in South Asia? And do you see any evidence of such resilience so far? There's a lot of work to be done in South Asia when it comes to making societies more resilient. And of course, uh, one of the challenges in South Asia is an economic challenge. Although India has grown significantly over the last three decades, Bangladesh has shown strong growth. There's still very large portions of those countries that are have very high poverty rates. Pakistan is in, in many ways economically more challenged. So we are starting with, unlike the United States or perhaps the European Union, you're starting with a part of the world that is struggling, and not all of it, but parts of it are struggling even today under mild climate change conditions relatively to cope. And when we spin this forward to 2030 or even more starkly 2050, then you're talking about interventions really from multiple directions. One of the main challenges that remains on preparing for climate change is forecasting and early warning systems. Although we have made a lot of progress in terms of global science, climate science and modeling. The South Asian monsoon is a central phenomenon that governs the life of close to a billion people in the region that depend on rains in some form or the other, directly or indirectly, for their livelihoods. And most of that is agriculture. But even dwellers in cities depend on rain for water. It's really a central and a massive and it's historically very stable where this weather phenomenon, the South Asian monsoon is. And we have good models now to predict where 
where the South Asian monsoon is going, but the certainty levels are still not quite there yet. More important, we still have work to do on local effects of the monsoon, so granular projections, because a lot of the effects of climate change are going to be governed by microclimates. And there's something called microclimate change, if one can use that term, which means that although there is an overall phenomenon of warming and we can predict certain broad trends, what happens in a particular community is much harder to predict or project in a, in a very precise or specific manner. There are districts, for example, in, in South Asia that could have a flood in one year and a drought in the next, and indeed could shift from flood-prone districts to drought-prone districts in the long run, or vice versa. And that may be different from the district just 100 miles away. We need to understand what's happening on the ground in a more granular fashion. We also need early warning systems. We saw recently a major disaster in the Indian state of Uttarakhand, where there was a major sort of a glacier collapse. Initially, was suspected to be a glacier lake outburst flood or a GLOF, but there are alternative theories. All of those theories, however, point to some climate impacts leading to the breakaway or a collapse or a landslide of an ice block. The changing temperatures, the shifting snow lines in the hills can create greater stresses on the rocks and induce them to collapse. That disaster killed many scores of people, destroyed dams that were being built, one particular one almost entirely small dam, but nevertheless significant to that community. This is not by any means the full brunt of what we will see in the Himalayas. And going forward, if you're looking at 2030 or 2040 or beyond, these sorts of disasters will become much more common and communities and currently or historically have been able to cope with occasional disasters like these. We leave many more resources to cope. So forecasting is one. The second one is investment. So as I said, communities like the ones in Uttarakhand will need early warning systems to warn them, perhaps 20 or 30 minutes before. They will need to know early enough so they can evacuate. And the same goes for cyclones. Now, we are much better at predicting cyclones. And India in particular has been particularly good in raising a national disaster relief force, a unit of the military that is dedicated specifically for disaster relief. And with that sort of preparedness that has been ramped up in India in particular since the 2004 Asian tsunami, many thousands, probably tens of thousands of lives have been saved. But still, that may save lives, early evacuation, shelters, and that sort of thing, but will often not save homes and homesteads. And when many of these people who are not particularly wealthy come back to their villages, they will have to, in some cases, start all over. A lot needs to be done to invest in infrastructure, also physical infrastructure, and as well as in communities, in making them more resilient, in increasing, at the end of the day, increasing living standards, but also increasing health and education and all the things that make families better cope with a disaster. Any family is the same around the world, whether it's in the US or Pakistan or Bangladesh or China. And uh, when a family suffers this sort of a disaster, there is a, a lot of support that's required and material means certainly make a big difference in addition to the social networks that South Asia has in, in plenty for supporting families and that sort of thing. We need investment, we need forecasting. And finally, we also need what I would call dialogue. Climate change is doing things in ways that affect relations between federal states 
say within India or Pakistan, where you have a river flowing through two, three or four states, the states uh, are at loggerheads in some cases over sharing the waters. This is also true in Pakistan, these two countries, countries in particular, but also between nation states, adjacent nation states that share major river basins, such as the Indus that's shared between China, India and Pakistan, and the Brahmaputra or Yalung Sangpo, as it's known in Tibet or China, uh, is shared between China, India and Bangladesh. And then you have the Ganges or the Ganga, as it's known in India, shared between Nepal, India and Bangladesh. So you have uh, interlocking of these countries, river water, river waters from these massive river systems. That climate change is stressing. So we know that climate change is going to cause much greater, more extreme rainfall events. It can trigger floods and flash floods with, with much greater frequency. It can also induced drought when water is scarce and all the more reason for communities to disagree about how to share that water. So what we need is dialogue at all levels, really starts from the local all the way to the national and then regional and even international. The Indus Water Treaty, which is a river water sharing treaty that stood the test of time for six decades, was facilitated by the World Bank back in the 1950s. And so the international community as well has a, a role in encouraging and supporting such a process of dialogue and, and trust building. Indeed, at uh, the Council on Strategic Risks, we have recently released two reports on South Asia. One is on South Asia's climate security challenges and the energy pathways that might get it to a, a more low-carbon future. And the second one more recently is on the India-China contestation and how climate change is impacting that. And specifically, we looked at the Brahmaputra River Basin and the Indus uh, River Basin as two major areas where climate change is impacting uh, relations between these two Asian giants and suggested certain policy pathways forward. Summarizing, we need better understanding of the problem. We need better warning of the problem. We need investments in communities, human as well as physical investments. And then finally, we need uh, pathways of uh, dialogue, trust building and confidence building to resolve some of these frictions that will inevitably arise anywhere when you have these sorts of major changes happening to the natural environment. As you say, early warning, investment, and dialogue will be very important in the region in the, I would imagine, short-term and long-term for the rest of this century and the rest of this decade. Before I ask you my next question, I would like to provide some security context. If I may, I would like to bring China into the equation. If China was considered part of South Asia vis-a-vis its relationships with India and Pakistan, then these would be the three most populous countries in South Asia. Each has a nuclear arsenal. India also has a history of border skirmishes with the other two countries, including recent ones in the past year. This is not to say a relatively brief armed border dispute will involve nuclear weapons, but it emphasizes that there are external implications of potential conflict escalation between these countries. You were a co-author on that recently released India-China rivalry study, and that case study showed a very complex water conflict relationship between India and China and Pakistan. Can you please explain the relationship between water resources and the conflicts between India, China, and Pakistan, and specifically how climate plays into this conflict? 
Yes, thank you, Evan, for bringing up the report. This has been a very interesting project. I should mention that this was a result of a collaboration with the Woodwell Climate Research Center, which is a really excellent cutting-edge climate science institution based in Massachusetts. It was a team effort. I was the lead author on the security side of the analysis, and my co-author was Rachel Fleischman. We had a fantastic team of scientists that worked on the science side of the equation, led by Alexandra Nagel, as well as Christopher for Schwarm, who is one of the senior scientists, also played a significant role and, and other amazing team members on their side. So this was a very intensive and collaborative and in-depth study that tried to integrate science and security in answering the question, now that climate change is happening and no, we know it's happening, how will it impact the India-China rivalry? Pakistan cannot be separated from the rivalry, both from the geopolitical angle, China and Pakistan are our close partners, even allies informally, and India has contestations with both countries. But also in specific climate terms, China is building dams on the Indus River in territory in Kashmir that is held by Pakistan that India claims. So right there, there is a serious point of friction between India, Pakistan, and China over the Indus River. And then on the eastern side of the subcontinent, there is a contestation between China and India on the Brahmaputra River basin. Climate change is acting really to increase extreme rainfall in the Brahmaputra basin. And what that means is more floods. Now, that part of India, where tens of millions of people live in the states of Assam and Arunachal Pradesh, is already very prone to flooding. Already has almost every year, if not every couple of years, has significant floods in some part of those states or the other. And climate change is looking set to worsen this over time. There's also the issue of dams. China is building dams upstream on the river. And one dam in particular that's been announced called located on the great bend of the river, the spectacular bend that the Brahmaputra, it's called the Yalum Sangpo in Tibet. It makes this 180 degree bend in eastern Tibet and then flows down to India. And the region of the bend is where China is going to build a very large dam with hydroelectric capacity of 60 gigawatts. And that's a truly massive dam. Just to give you a sense of the scale, that's going to be three times the size of the Three Gorges Dam, which is, of course, internationally famous. So the Chinese plan for building this dam is, has raised a lot of concern in India because China has had historically, unfortunately, not a very transparent approach when it comes to building dams and how it communicates on that issue with its neighbors. Uh, and we saw that in the Mekong River case with Southeast Asia. And there are real concerns that this will repeat in the case of China. China and India. And indeed, Bangladesh, by the way, is also involved because that's a downstream country. The study didn't look at Bangladesh, but in terms of the actual question at hand, Bangladesh is very much also vulnerable and is concerned. So the question is, with the lack of trust that exists between India and China, and as you pointed out recently, there's been a lot of increased tension. There's been some violent clash, killed 20 Indian troops and at least four Chinese troops in June of 2020. There's a massive buildup of uh, militaries on both sides, particularly on the western border, uh, close to 100,000 troops facing off. The crisis doesn't seem to be resolving itself anytime soon. Atmosphere of a lack of trust, 
India-Pakistan relations are also at their lowest point in many, many years. Although recently there's been some signs of a dialogue, we haven't seen any breakthroughs yet. So we are looking at broad region, militarized borders, lack of trust. And in the case of India and China, lack of a treaty. There is no treaty governing the Brahmaputra River. Unlike the Indus between India and Pakistan, there is not a treaty between India and China. And this is a risk going forward because as we move forward, the dam will have potentially unpredictable effects depending on the design of the dam. Most experts think that it will have substantial storage. And if that is indeed the case, then we will see very substantial material effects downstream. For example, when the dam is first filled, it can take even months dam of that size and not to mention the fact that the region around the Great Bend where the dam is located is seismically sensitive. It is prone to earthquakes. So if we see a big earthquake in that region that causes the dam to crack and a sudden release of water, you can get a particularly extreme flood downstream. So we have these material effects. We also have perceptual uh, risks because climate change doesn't need the dams to do its damage. It's doing it on its own. It's causing, we know it's going to cause increased flood and India may suspect or believe that a particularly extreme flood is caused by Chinese actions, either willful or just due to negligence and defining attribution when there's low trust can be a hazardous enterprise. So we are talking about uh, a sort of a fairly dystopian mix of, uh, of conditions, both natural, geopolitical, and if one can use the term, psychological or perceptual, where uh, all of those are heading in the wrong direction. A lot can be done to repair this, but it will have to start from the two countries themselves. The China as the upstream actor will have to make the first move, but India will also have to respond. And data diplomacy, exchange of much better, more granular data, which China does provide India data on the river, but the data is from points that are well upstream of where it ideally should be. Also, the data has been suspended on occasion when tensions have risen. So we need a much more robust data exchange mechanism. We really need also cooperation and dialogue on national disasters such as avalanches, such as GLOFs, where the two militaries can cooperate in the border area to rescue civilians that may be trapped. It's really a humanitarian thing that both militaries can are best equipped really to help civilians. And during such times, there ought to be a modus operandi for, for them to perhaps set aside some of their rivalries and cooperate. But in the long run, of course, what we need is a, is a more comprehensive treaty where China is brought in into an institutional mechanism where it is committed to take India's interests and Bangladesh's interests into account when building these massive dams. And at the same time, for India, because India has also announced a response in terms of its own dam downstream. And India also would, would then need to be transparent about its projects. Although, of course, the upstream actor in all of these circumstances has more power and therefore more responsibilities. So that's what would, would be the ideal uh, world we could live in. What we live in today is quite far from that, but uh, our report tries to point the direction, well, first excavates the problem, defines it, provides a lot of detail in terms of the problem, and also points the way forward. Thank you for your very informative answer. You mentioned China is not very transparent in its planning and progress. This goes toward the lack of trust that you mentioned. Is there any plan for enforcing accountability or how could potential future crises be averted, whether the crises are ultimately climate driven or geostrategically or geopolitically driven in the region? 
Well, ultimately, the roots of these rivalries are not climate change, of course. They are rooted in history. They are rooted in territorial contestations. They are rooted in even international politics and geopolitics. They're also rooted in local developments, such as as countries are getting richer, they're building more infrastructure on the border. And when territories are not clearly demarcated, then these projects run into each other. So that's almost inevitable when you don't have a clearly defined border. As we say, good fences make good neighbors, and we don't have good fences in that region. This goes well beyond climate change. I think what climate change is doing is to add another driver to magnify these conflicts. And as we know, the, the tipping point uh, argument that it takes perhaps sometimes a single tipping point to move a region into, into conflict or move it closer to conflict. And climate change can certainly act as that. If not that tipping point, it can certainly move the regions closer to conflict, add another issue. There are two ways of looking at it. One is, well, climate is irrelevant because the, the problems are deep, historic territorial and those need to be resolved. But I don't think that's the right way to look at it because one can think of climate change as one area where actually a dialogue is possible. After all, right now, the Brahmaputra has a lot of water and the dam will not be built for 15 years, even if the construction begins tomorrow. So there's a lot of time for countries to actually walk back some of this lack of trust and climate change provides a pathway. Even if territorial contestations are not resolved, the countries can discuss natural disasters, cooperation saving civilian lives and warning uh, each other about sudden weather phenomena, sharing data, even things like environmental practices or uh, ecosystems. There's a lot there that security planners would not object to tremendously as a means to save lives. And indeed, they are lower risk activities. There is really no downside as I see it in having a discussion or dialogue in these areas. And then once such a dialogue proceeds, it can create its own dynamic of rebuilding trust. And in the best case scenario, that trust can then bleed on to other areas, more difficult areas of the relationship. So, so I see climate change, it's always a bad thing, but how we tackle it can be a good thing in the sense that it can have positive externalities and can engender the sort of trust, sort of culture of conversation, culture of uh, indeed international engagement as well. I mean, there is a interest in, in the international national community to not have these three countries enter into a conflict. All around, I see climate change as a warning, but also a pathway for, for optimism and not climate change itself, but human response to it can show that we can actually overcome these challenges. In fact, utilize the threat as an opportunity. Thank you very much. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to add for the listeners? Well, I think uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground, Evan, and thank you for raising these really pertinent questions. I just wanted to mention that in many ways, climate change is a global phenomenon, and South Asia is a part of a larger Asian region. And both geopolitically and environmentally, we ultimately have to look at South Asia as a part of the wider Indo-Pacific, as well as the wider Eurasian landmass, and understand that some of these solutions can also be tackled at those planes. I myself have done some writing on, at the global level, analysis, looking at decarbonization pathways or how mitigation approaches or renewable energy is impacting security on a global level. And I think regional analyses such as uh, 
one on South Asia or some work I've done on Iran and the Middle East in the past, uh, as well as uh, global level analysis can be brought together and shedding more light on problems and questions uh, like these. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> And uh, I think uh, there's no lack of opportunity for us to roll up our sleeves and, and get to it. Sarong, I greatly enjoy this insightful discussion. I look forward to future discussions. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much, Evan, for having me. It's been a real pleasure to be on The Verge and very exciting to share these new findings and I look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.